I want to go ahead and invite um, Roger London up. Roger is going to lead us this morning in our time with the Word. Uh, Roger was originally going to be preaching for us uh, when I was in Albania, but we shifted some things around so we could have Tony Perkins here. And I am super glad because I get to then sit underneath the Word this morning as uh, Roger gets to preach. And I'm so grateful for him and respect him so highly. If you don't know Roger, he has an elder here at the church and has served as a pastor uh, here for years and years. Um, uh, yeah, so we're super glad to hear what the Lord has put upon his heart. Would you just welcome him this morning? Roger. Thank you, Darren. Well, thank you. It's uh, good to be here uh, and with you today. Uh, it's uh, an honor and privilege to come before you. Uh, I don't take lightly uh, what I'm about to do. Uh, the Word of God is precious, and it lives forever, and He's given it to us. He's that gracious. Uh, so, uh, this morning as we begin, when I teach, uh, I usually ask a number of questions, and I'm going to be asking different questions this morning, I don't do that just to fill space. I really want you to think about them, okay? And this, was, this one shouldn't be too hard for you as we begin, but for those of you who live in Wichita, what happens at noon on Mondays? Besides lunch. The sirens, okay, yeah, you hear sirens, the civil defense sirens, the storm warning sirens. They're tested every week for a few seconds. Why? Yeah, to make sure they work, right? Obvious answer, to make sure the system is working in case it is ever needed. Well, it was on a Friday last spring, April 29th. In the evening, the weather was questionable. Many of us heard sirens. Some of you didn't pay attention to the sirens. You went out and watched the tornado. I know, because we have pictures of people watching the tornado. And some of you were in the midst of that, tragically enough. But you see, at that time, it wasn't a possibility. It was a real thing. So why warnings? They're meant to save lives by giving people time to prepare for what is coming. And that is exactly what our passage is about today. The parable about the rich man and Lazarus is a warning about preparing not for a passing storm, but about preparing for eternity. It's not the idea that eternity may come. Folks, it's a sure thing. It's coming. Eternity is coming for all of us. And Jesus warns us and tells us that we need to be ready for that day. Pam, if you would come on up, and she's going to be reading the scripture today. Would you please be standing, which is our custom to read, to stand as we read the scripture, please. Good morning, church family. Today we're reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, 
Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Church, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it's living, that it's true, and we can believe it. And I thank you for this message today and pray you'd use it for your glory. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not yet ready for eternity, I pray, God, through your Holy Spirit, uh, that you do a mighty work in each heart, in each life, that we all might make sure we're ready, that we're living a life for you and a life that honors you. So God, use the word today to your glory. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I begin this morning, I have another question for you. What will happen when you die? In case you're not sure, that, end, that question will be answered as we go along this morning. In some parables that we've been through this summer and the stories that Jesus tells us, some of them are quite clear and others kind of leave us scratching our heads thinking, what was the real message there that he's getting across? But the parable today is very clear. It's clearly broken into three parts, life, death, and eternity. And as we begin, we need to agree on what I'm gonna call is, is common ground. In John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. The verse says, no one can get to God except through Jesus. And that's a truth that many people today in this world absolutely will not accept. Many will never accept that Jesus is the only way to God. But let me say this, truth is not always told to make you feel good. Too many people today and too many churches today are not interested in truth, they're only interested in a feel good gospel. They say, I don't need any guilt trips, don't make me feel bad, don't offend me or anyone else, don't say anything hurtful in any way. Interesting enough, we find in scripture that many people walked away from Jesus because they were not interested in hearing the truth. 
Truth is not a popular virtue in our culture today. Many today would say, would tell us, say whatever's expedient to make your point. Truth doesn't matter. This is quite evident in our media that truth does not matter. In many cases, we're told what other people want us to believe about an event, not the truth of an event. Many in the media and the political world have adopted the philosophy, tell a lie long enough and people will begin to believe it. And let me tell you, that's the philosophy is right out of the devil's handbook. He has been doing that from the very beginning. Satan or the devil, both of those mean the same thing, cannot speak the truth. He only speaks lies. Jesus says the devil or Satan is the, the father of all lies. Anything he says is a lie. So we need to remember this because since Satan first approached Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he has been consistently twisting the truth to deceive people, to try to distract people and take people away from God. Now in a crowd this size, I'm sure there are some different opinions about Jesus really speaking the truth. Many of us would, would confess, well, we believe that, even though at times we may struggle taking him at his word. Some here may say, well, he's only one of many of different opinions. Others may say, well, I believe the things that he says that I, that I like and that I agree with. But hopefully all of us here today are seeking truth. And the truth is, even Satan knows and believes that Jesus speaks the truth. Satan is a master at twisting the truth of God's word to deceive people. So as we approach this passage, realizing and understanding that Jesus is doing much more than just telling a story. He's speaking truth about life, about death, and about eternity. So here's our setting. Jesus is telling one of the parables, as we know, and to many of his followers. But in the crowd, we know, too, there are Pharisees in the midst of all of that. Pharisees were considered to be among the elite of the religious leaders of the day. They were students of the Ten Commandments and the, the laws of Moses. They were highly esteemed and regarded as holy people among, or holy men among the people of the day. They were all about attracting attention to themselves. We find they, stood, they, they would stand on street corners and pray loud prayers just so they could be seen and heard of men. They were continually elevating themselves above, above other people. They were more about the show than really didn't care about the heart and the needs of people. The Pharisees viewed wealth as a blessing of God and they viewed those who were poor as being cursed of God. Jesus often warned people about the religious hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees, about their self-righteous, prideful, legalistic, and judgmental attitudes. The, the Pharisees thought they had special with, favor with God because of their wealth. They thought they were on their way to heaven because they were religious. Earlier in our chapter in Luke 16, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about their values. In verses 14 and 15, we read these words, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So we may ask, why does Jesus again tell us this story about the rich man and Lazarus? It's clearly, 
a warning. Throughout his ministry, Jesus gave many warnings. And in his own words, how many times did he say, beware? Beware of false teachers. Beware of, of false religions. Beware of the traditions of men. He even said, beware of the Pharisees because of their religious hypocrisy. In Mark 13, 5, Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. In Mark 13, 23, he said, be on your guard. But of all the warnings that Jesus gives throughout scripture, the message of the rich man and Lazarus has got to be one of the most serious warnings that we find. It's not about making bad financial uh, decisions. It's not about making bad earthly uh, decisions. It's all about eternity and eternal outcomes. Why is this warning so serious? Bottom line, eternity hangs in the balance. And knowing that Jesus speaks only the truth and that he is telling this story, I want us to look together at this passage and we will see six eternal truths that Jesus brings to our attention concerning life, death, and eternity. Now we need to note, truth can be ignored, but it cannot be denied. By way of introduction, again, there are three principal players that we will meet in our story. There's a rich man. We're not told that he is a Pharisee, but boy, he sure lives like a lot of them. There was a man by the name of Lazarus who actually does not speak in our story. And he's not to be confused with the Lazarus that we find in John 11 that were Mary and Martha's brother. And then we find Abraham. Abraham is a Jewish patriarch. He was held in high honor and known as the father of the faith among the Jewish people of the day. As the story opens, the rich man and Lazarus are on earth. Abraham is in heaven. The only conversation in our story is between the rich man and Abraham. So the first truth that we find is that life is full of contrast. This isn't news to us. You know, some people are rich, some people are poor, and many of us live in between the two. So let's go back to our passage starting at with verse 19 and follow with me. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So just a few words we learned about the rich man. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. Purple clothing, especially in that day, uh, showed royalty and wealth, and he was all about that. He lived in luxury. He had the best of the best. He had servants. He had food on the table. It was like killing the fatted calf every day. Plenty of food on the table. No desire that he had was unmet. Nothing in this life was beyond his grasp. In his day, those wealthy were mistakenly viewed as highly honored by God. So the rich man thought he had favor with God just simply because he was wealthy. Now, as a Jew, we know he was religious. To him, heaven was a sure thing because he was religious. So next we meet Lazarus. Uniquely enough in all the parables, Lazarus is the only one that has a name. His name means whom the Lord has helped. Lazarus was a beggar. He was hungry at the point of starvation. Evidently, he was crippled because we find in the passage that people took him and laid him at basically the front door of the rich man's house. Why the gate? 
Well, for the same reason we find other places in scripture where, where crippled people were taken many times to the gate of the, of the temple because that was, there was a lot of people coming and going. Uh, there was a high traffic area. So maybe out of the benevolence of other people going by, they would give to the beggars. And in this case, every day the rich man would have to walk past Lazarus anytime he left his house or returned. The rich man undoubtedly knew who Lazarus was, but he never paid attention to him or helped him in any way. People in Lazarus' condition were looked down upon because of their pathetic situation. And many believed that their physical issue was a curse from God because of sin in their life. Lazarus, was, he was pitiful. He was full of sores. He couldn't even get away from the dogs that would come and lick the sores. Now let me say this about the dogs. They're not like your little fluff balls that uh, sit in your lap and lick your face and wag their tail and smile at you when you come in the door. These dogs were more like scavengers back in Jesus' day. They were not household pets. And they would come and lick the sores. And Lazarus was so crippled, he couldn't even get away from them. Lazarus was always hungry. He was starving. He longed for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Now let it be noted, regardless of life circumstances, it was true in Jesus' day and it's true today that there's nothing spiritual about being rich, nor is there anything spiritual about being poor. The amount of money in your bank account has absolutely nothing to do with your spirituality. And in fact, we know that Jesus gave warning to the rich that it's difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God not because of their money, but because of their heart. The danger of the rich is their tendency to believe they're self-sufficient, that money, wealth, and status will meet all their needs, and, and they have no need of God. And that exa is exactly where we find the rich man. He thought he had God's blessing because he had earthly wealth, he had position, he had status, but he was sadly mistaken. One thing that was always, has always been true and always will be true is that when you die, you're gonna leave everything behind. Nothing goes with you. The problem of the rich man was not his wealth. The problem of the rich man was not how he got his wealth. His problem was he was just wealthy. That's all he had. And he ended up losing the most valuable possession that he had, his soul. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus asked all of us a valuable question, so I want you to tune into this. I want you to think about it. Here's Jesus' question. He says, what good will it do for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So the question, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The answer is nothing. Nothing. There's nothing in this world that a man can give to, to buy his soul back. Your soul is eternal, it's who you are. It's the part of you that's gonna go into eternity. So in the first three verses, we're introduced to the rich man and Lazarus and the dramatic contrast between their two lives. The second truth that we find is death is real. In verse 22, it simply says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And then it goes on to say, as a simple matter of fact, the rich man also died and he was buried. 
Death is a matter of fact, and no one can avoid it. And should the Lord tarry, there will be a day that it will be said of each of us that we too have also died. Through the course of time, medical science has done incredible things, but man has not yet been invented a way to keep death from happening. There's medicines, there's all kinds of things to extend life and to make life better. But man has never been able to prevent death. It's coming for all of us. And the rich man died and he was buried. And that was really the conclusion of the matter. Undoubtedly, many of the community probably attended his funeral. He lived in luxury. I'm sure no expense was spared for his funeral and burial. And death is not a pleasant thought. And we don't go around thinking about it. But it is a reality of life. So that begs another question. What exactly is death? Well, we're introduced to death early in the Bible, actually in the third chapter of Genesis. And it's interesting because the first death that we find in scripture is not physical, it's spiritual. In the beginning, God created man and woman to be with him forever. In creation, God put one stipulation on Adam and Eve. He said, you can eat of anything in the Garden of Eden, it's a beautiful place, and you can have anything to eat that you want except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat anything off of that tree, you will die. Now, if you're familiar with the story, the rest of the story, we know what happened. They were tempted, time came, they ate of the fruit. My question for you today is when they ate of the fruit, did they drop over dead? No, they didn't. But what did happen? Well, we find what happened is that God kicked them out of the garden. In other words, they were literally sent out of his presence. So we get a clear definition of death. It's separation. Physical death is separation from each other, a friend or a loved one. And that is why we experience grief and sorrow. It was right at 20 years ago. My dad had some health issues. He was living at home with my mom. Everything seemed fine. On a Friday, he had a doctor's appointment. We discovered things were not so good after all. And he checked into Wesley Hospital. And it was just a week later, on that next Saturday, my mother, my sister, and I were with him when he took his last breath. And at that moment, he went into eternity. Having been in the ministry all my life, there's been times where I've been with families when a, a loved one has, has passed. We've been along the bedside as that person left this life. It's a difficult time. However, it was different with my dad in a sense. Obviously, it was, it was more personal. I naturally felt it. I felt the separation. And I realized I would never see my dad again in this life as I had always known him. Death had separated us. You see, physical death is our separation from one another. Spiritual death is separation from God forever. This is what we see in the Bible. Both men died. Both men were separated from family and friends. Then what? That leads us to our third truth. I forgot to tell you, this is not a warm, fuzzy message, okay? <laughs> if you hadn't figured that out yet, I'll just let you know. All right, point three, after death comes eternity. And this is what the parable is really about. Jesus warns us that after death comes eternity. He clearly shows us what is waiting in eternity. And this is where we find the answer to the question I asked you in the beginning. What will happen when you die? 
you will go into eternity. After your last breath on earth, your next breath will be in eternity. The scripture is quite clear about this. If you remember when Jesus was on the cross, there was a repentant thief that called out for mercy on, on Jesus. And Jesus said, I tell you, what did he say? I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And speaking to Christians, the apostle Paul said, to be absent to the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So upon death, there is no limbo land. There's not some holding place for the dead. Death and eternity is set. Once again, in this passage, we see another clear contrast in the difference between heaven and hell. Now, earlier I mentioned that Jesus speaks only the truth and that Satan and devil speaks only lies. Well, get this. One truth about Satan's lies is this. Satan has convinced, or should we say deceived, many people today into thinking everyone's going to heaven. And it would be nice if it were true, but it's the devil's lie. We read the rich man died and was buried. The very next thing we find in verse 23, if you look at it, he is what? He's in hell, where he is in torment. There's no delay. The second after you die, you will know your eternal destiny. The rich man undoubtedly was surprised he was in hell. The unfortunate truth is many on the day of their death will be surprised they're in hell. Many religious people will be surprised in hell. Why do you say that? Most people in this world are religious in some form or fashion. And most religious people will be surprised they're in hell. Many people who attend church will be surprised they're in hell because it's a lot about a lot more than that. And why? Because they've been deceived. The devil is still at work. He's still deceiving people. He is still telling lies. He is now trying to convince people that men are women and women are men, that boys are girls and girls are boys, and that men can have babies. Do we not see or get what is going on? The devil is trying to convince you and your children that somehow God made a mistake when he made you. In reality, this whole assault is on God as our creator of life. Now, Christian, don't you dare believe it. Don't you be deceived. Don't believe the lie that is going on today. And listen to me, listen to me. When truth is absent, anything goes and people are easily deceived and are easily led astray. And that's what is exactly going on today. Truth is being denied, so people are just roaming around, believing whatever they hear. Satan has deceived some people into thinking there's a heaven and there is no hell. He's deceived some people into thinking that everyone is going to heaven. He's deceived some people into thinking that good works will get you to heaven, and that's just not true. Over the years, I've done a number of funerals, and I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I've heard people say about the deceased, well, at least they're in a better place. And I've often wondered. Now, thankfully, many times that's true. When we uh, know a faithful follower of Jesus has passed from this life and we can rejoice and have peace of mind and heart in the midst of our sorrow. But often, too often, 
it's not true. Because Satan has deceived people into thinking, you can live this life without God and still go to heaven. Now, just by way of example, if this hand represents God, this hand represents people. If we live apart from God and die apart from God, does it really make sense we would be with God later in heaven? Not really. You see, if we live apart from God and die apart from God, we will be forever apart from God. That's what hell is, being forever apart from God. I really like what Dr. Mark Hitchcock said. Look at it. It says, when you are deceived, you are deceived, and you don't know you're deceived. Think about that a minute. You don't know when you're deceived. That's what the whole part of being deceived is about. And that's exactly why truth matters. That's exactly why Jesus warns us to not be deceived. And I want to ask you this morning, what is the source of authority in your life? What's the source of authority? Is it the words of men or is it the word of God? We must seek after the truth. And the truth is Jesus is the truth. The Bible, God's worth is true. Think about it. If Jesus is not true, if the Bible is not true, what do you have? What hope do you have? Why are we even here if the Bible is not true? This parable is not about the splendor and the wonders of heaven. It's about the unimaginable horrors of hell. And the main thing we can learn about heaven is that Lazarus went there. He's described being there by Abraham's side. Abraham describes the, describes the great contrast between the eternal outcomes of the two men in, in verse 25. He addresses the rich man and he says, son, Remember that in your lifetime, you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. This leads us to our fourth truth. Hell is eternal torment. At verse 24, we read, So he, the rich man, cried out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in an agony in this fire. Well, here we find something unusual. We find a testimony from someone who is in hell, and it's not good. Many people are deceived into thinking that hell is going to be some kind of a party. People live wild in this life. They think hell will just be more of the same thing. Are you... Are you kidding? By his own words, the rich man says it's unquenchable. He has unquenchable thirst. He is in torment. He's in agony. He's in fire. Does that sound like some kind of party you would like to go to? This parable is clearly a warning about the truth of hell. And actually we find in scripture that Jesus said more about hell than he did about heaven. In Luke 13, 27 and 28, Jesus speaks of those who will be cast out from his presence and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 3, 12, he describes hell as unquenchable fire. In Matthew 5, 22, Jesus speaks of being in danger of the fire of hell. And Revelation 20, 14 describes hell as a lake of fire. Matthew 13, 42, in the parable of the weeds, Jesus says they will throw them into the fiery furnace 
and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In another parable, in the parable of the net, Jesus said in Matthew 14, 49, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is repeatedly described as outer darkness, a place of isolation and separation. Hell will be an eternity of tormenting regret for those who go there. You say, well, Roger, I just don't believe that. Well, you know what? Neither did the rich man. But you're not believing it doesn't keep it from happening. You say, well, if God is so loving, how can God send anyone to hell? Well, perhaps there's something you don't know about God. It's not God's desire for anyone to go to hell. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So the truth is, we go to hell because of our own sin, because of our own rebellion against God. The truth is, God is the only one who's ever done anything to keep you from going to hell. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The gift of God, interesting enough, is what? It's eternal life. As a Jew, the rich man was religious, but being religious didn't save him. So Jesus' message in scripture is clear. Salvation by human effort is really impossible. And another passage of scripture in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 makes this very clear to us. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. So here's another truth for you. God is loving, but God is also just. And because God is just, he must punish sin. So now we come to our fifth truth. Sadly enough, hell is forever. Abraham describes one of the horrific truths of hell. It is forever, and there's no changing places. There's no such thing as paying your dues in hell for a while, and then you get to move on to heaven. In our story, Abraham brings a harsh truth to the rich man's attention. Look at verse 26 with me. He says, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. I don't know what you think of a chasm, but have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Many of us have. You sit on one edge and you can't hardly even see the other side of it. But you see a river down below. Well, a chasm would be you're on one side, you can't see the other side, and there's nothing below. There's, there's no way to get across. And that's what he's describing. Once you're in one place, there's no way to get to the other side or to the other place. The truth is, once you take your last breath here on earth, your eternity is set forever. Jude 7 speaks of hell as punishment of e- eternal fire. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus said, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So question, how long is eternal? We can't comprehend that because we live in, by our clocks and our calendars. 
the hard truth is, regardless of what you may have heard, you cannot pray anyone out of hell into heaven. Now it appears by verse 27 in our passage, the rich man has accepted his fate. And perhaps we need to take note that we never find that the rich man showed or expressed regret. Oh, he cried out for pity for a drop of water to cool his tongue. But he never said, God, I am so sorry I didn't help Lazarus. I am so sorry I didn't use any of my money for the good of others. I am so sorry I was so consumed with my own pleasures. I was, I'm so sorry that I, I never cared for other people except for how I could use them. I'm so sorry I was full, full of pride. I'm so sorry I, I lived without God. I'm so sorry I never paid attention to the words of Jesus. You see, many, many prideful people will continue to curse God in hell, just like they do now. And another sad truth is that many people who want nothing to do with God in this life, they'll get their wish for all of eternity. And realizing his own eternal fate, the rich man suddenly shows a glimpse of compassion for someone else. He wants his five brothers to be what? He wants them to be warned of their eternal fate that is ahead of them. And this brings us to our next truth. The scripture is sufficient. Moses and the prophets were the scripture of the day we refer to them as the Old Testament. So follow with me as we read here in verse 27 to 31. It says, he, the rich man answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come, will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, no Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The truth is, folks, the word of God is enough. The truth is, we don't need any more in the scripture. If we did, God would have given it to us. God reveals himself in scripture. And people in Jesus' day were always wanting more. They were wanting signs and miracles. Come on, God, show yourself to us. Let me tell you, God doesn't have to show himself to anybody, but he does. He doesn't have to, but he does. The scripture says, if we pay attention to scripture, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. So those sunsets, those sunrises, the majesty of the starlit nights, you think that's just mother nature at work? No, we find out the truth of the matter in the scripture because the scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God. You see a rainbow and you think, is that just some phenomenon, some reflective thing that's going on uh, in science, how they would describe it? No, God said back in Genesis, this is a covenant between me and you. He got very personal. He said, anytime you see a rainbow, just remember I'm never gonna flood the earth again because I love you and I want what's best for you. If we read the scripture, we know the answers to life and all that goes around us. We don't need more than the scripture. Every day, in many ways, God reveals himself through the word of God. Every day, the word of God is true and it never changes and it never will change. The final plea from the rich man 
Well, if my brother sees someone from the dead, then they will believe. To the Pharisees and other religious people of the day, Jesus met them head on. The Jews continually demanded signs from Jesus, but they continually rejected the signs that he gave them. Over in John 11, we see that Jesus raised a real man by the name of Lazarus after he had been dead for four days. Did that convince the religious leaders? No. They decided they needed to kill, kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence. And we know that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin, that he died and was buried three days and he rose again after three days. Did that convince the religious leaders of the day? No. They, they lied and they said, well, somebody stole his body. He really didn't rise from the dead, among other stories. The religious leaders of Jesus' day ignored the truth. The rich man was sure that if his brothers saw someone from the dead, they would believe. But Abraham's response, if your brothers don't believe what Moses and the prophets said about life and death and eternity, they will never believe anyone from the dead. The rich man did not end up in hell because he wasn't nice to people. The only reason the rich man ended up in where he did is because he failed to believe and act on the truth of Scripture, God's holy word. God alone has provided the one and only way to heaven, and it's through his son, Jesus Christ. Once again, we're going to go back to where we began, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unfortunately, eternity in hell awaits those who, like the rich man and a lot of other religious people who have been deceived, people who believe their own goodness, that their church attendance and the good things they do will save them, they will all be sadly mistaken. You see, it's not about a religion, folks. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Through, and That's how we get to God, a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Does that sound harsh? Does that sound scary? I told you in the beginning, this parable is a warning. Now listen to me. People that love you are going to warn you about bad things to come. And that's exactly what we find Jesus doing. That's what he's doing here. He's loving us by telling us this story. And he's saying, watch out, be careful, don't be deceived. Now we know warnings are of no value if they're ignored. And Jesus has given us a clear warning today of what is coming. Jesus tells us this story, this parable, to warn us. Life is short, death is certain, and eternity is real. So what are you going to do about it? If you're here today and you've never professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what you need to do. You need to confess that you're a sinner, that you need God's help. You need to repent. You need to turn from sin and the things in your life that you know are not right and give up those old ways. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ who died for your sin and rose again on three, three days later to overcome death. He did that to save your soul. And you accept the gift of God, which is eternal life. 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Many of us are Christians, so what do you, what do, you do with it? And now it's you. We need to pray for lost people. We need to pray for a greater burden for lost people because today it's been revealed what the destiny is for those who don't know Jesus Christ. We need to pray that we will have more boldness to warn others that eternity is coming. We need to remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And we need to thank God for that. Pray with me, will you please? God, we thank you for the words you've given us, for the love that you have for us, that you would warn us of what is coming. Lord, we realize in a way that we've never realized before what Jesus did on the cross when he died for our sin. And knowing that sin would take us to eternal death and eternal separation from you. So God, we thank you for loving us that much that you gave your own son to die for us. God, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our arrogance, our pride, our complacency. And God, I pray you'd fill us with a holy boldness to live the truth that you called us to live, to have the wisdom and the discernment to know truth from untruth. Help us to fall in love with your word all over again. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you're in need of prayer, you want to make a decision for Jesus Christ, you've never done that, we'll have counselors down front. Now, there used to be a day they say, don't get emotional. Because we don't people just coming down because they're emotional. I don't know about you, but death is pretty emotional. And I'm not appealing to that. I'm just appealing to you that eternity hangs in the balance right now. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to come. There'll be people down here, elders and prayer counselors who have talked to you about that. Either now or after the service, we invite you to come. We're going to sing a song that Ryan's going to lead us in right now. You think about the words and you come if you have a decision. Will you please stand right now as we sing?